Good morning, First Pres. It's so good to see you. Uh, it's so good to be back with you uh, this week. I visited with some of you this weekend, and it's been great to catch up. We've missed these relationships very much. Um, I'm just glad to come in. I, I baptized a little buddy Blakely in the first service. That was a joy to be with the Blakeleys uh, and now to be here with you in this service. Uh, we, uh, I am the, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Andy Wyatt. I'm uh, the pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church, PCA, in Johnson City, Tennessee. I uh, have been there for about a year and a half. Uh, we have gone through, the pandemic did come to Johnson City. We've been doing all the same things you have been doing. Here We've had uh, services outside in our parking lot for five months and now back inside in two services when we used to have one and all the rest and, and there's light at the end of the tunnel, praise the Lord. So, um, but so good to be back with you uh, uh, this week uh, and, and this Sunday and now to open the scriptures with you. If you would take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> we're going to look at the first 11 verses of this great chapter. Uh, commentators sometimes say of Romans 8, it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. It feels a bit weird to call a chapter that. They're all great, uh, but I guess if you had to pick one, this would be one to pick. Uh, it is truly the, the span of salvation. You, something is declared about you in verse 1, and then you are now not what you used to be. You are saved in Jesus Christ. Now you begin a life in the Spirit, he begins in verse 5. And then he tells you what that life is like. It's a life of putting to death your sin, putting to death the deeds of the body. And then it's a life that can deal with suffering like you never before could. The life in the Spirit is a life of suffering. It's not, it doesn't mean something's gone off the rails. It means this is the normal Christian life. And then it ends very beautifully saying there is absolutely nothing that could ever, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, or what Derek Thomas has called Romans chapter 8, how the gospel brings us all the way home. And indeed it does. From start to finish, it saves you in Jesus, it continues to save you through the Spirit, and then it brings you all the way into glory with Him. So let me read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, though we will cover 1 through 11 in the sermon. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the time in your word this morning. Would you add your blessing to the reading of it? Holy Spirit, would you fill us as we hear from your word and that we would endeavor to follow you all the days of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I said, we moved to Johnson City about a year and a half ago, and this house that we moved into, ever since we moved in, we have been doing some sort of renovation project. Uh, now, that's bad news for me, who's not handy. All I can really do is wield a paintbrush, but I've done my best. And we didn't, we didn't buy the house because we liked it. We bought the neighborhood. You ever done that before? You bought the neighborhood, not really the house. Well, that's what happened to us. But slowly, over about a year and a half, we've begun to really love the house. We've done work in the kitchen. We've literally painted every single interior wall in the whole house, some more than, some more than once. We've done work in the kitchen and the floors and the landscaping, and now it's starting to be what we want it to. 
And of course, when I say we, I only say that because I happen to live in the house. None of this is my plan, mind you. None of this, we're not carrying out my vision for the home. It's Lauren's vision for the home. And she has a gift. She can take something that's ugly and make it beautiful. She knows how to take a room that, that basically we're trying, this, the guy who lived there before us, we're trying to, to get every remnant that he ever lived there out of the house because he made some bad design choices. And slowly we've done just that. It's under new management. We want to totally take it to the studs in some places and renovate it out. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit has come to do in your heart and life when you become a Christian. It's under new management, your heart is. But not just new management. He's come to renovate the place. He's come to take it down to the studs and to rebuild it in the way that he wants it to look. So that means your mind is going to change. He wants you to think differently. He's going to renew it. It means that your life is going to be different. Your actions will be different, and your desires are even going to be different. He plans to completely renovate the house that is your heart and life and desires. And that's what we want him to do. Now, that process is far from easy. It doesn't happen like that, like we want it to. This process of sanctification, no doubt Harry Reader, when he was here recently, probably talked of it this way. We'd like to have microwave sanctification, but the Bible talks about crockpot sanctification. It's something that is a process, and it takes time, and it can be very difficult. But Paul elsewhere says, we are a new creation. There is something that's now true of you that was not true before you came to Christ. You have abilities and responsibilities that you didn't have then. You can please him in ways that you were not able to do before. You have been brought from death to life, from hostility to peace with God. Yet, we still identify, don't we, with the way Paul describes himself in the passage that Chip read for us. All the good stuff I know I'm supposed to do, I don't end up doing that. And all the bad things I'm supposed to do, I kind of find myself wanting to do that. And this, this, this exclamation of, what wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever said something like that before? I'm a Christian, and I can't believe I just thought that. I'm a Christian, and I can't believe I spoke harshly to that person the way that I did. What wretched man or woman I am, I, who's going to deliver me? What Paul describes there is not some, this is what you once were, and then you came to Christ and you aren't that anymore. He's describing the normal Christian experience. But he's not saying you stay there. As he'll go on to say in Romans 8, you've got to put to death those sins again and again and again, perpetually, day after day. Two realities are true of the Christian at the exact same time. The first is this. We continue to struggle and battle with our sin. And that battle includes victories and defeats. It includes really good days and bad days and everything in between. So that's part of the Christian life. But what the other part of the Christian life is this. I stand before God completely redeemed and clothed in the righteousness of Christ so that all those sins that I once committed or the ones that I committed on the drive over here this morning or the ones that I will commit one day, those have been paid for, cleansed, no condemnation. You still struggle, yet you are fully and completely redeemed. And it's something we've, we've got to get on board with that. We've got to see that something's been declared of us to be true, but we're also being transformed in our inner person. 
So three things I want us to see from this passage. The first begins with this declaration. It's a declaration of no condemnation that Paul gives. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So right now, (laughs) there's now no condemnation for those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it from the outset, which is really an amazing declaration based on the struggle that he has, he's already described of himself. That's true, but what's also true is that there is no condemnation for you. So for us, as we struggle through this Christian life, we've got to remember that declaration about us to be true. We can't forget it. Justification has been earned for you. You can't lose it. There's not going to come a day when, oh, well, I know that's what I said a few years ago, but it's not true any longer. No, it's true of you, always. It's an irreversible not guilty that's been said over you and of your heart and soul, which really is an amazing thing in light of what Paul has constantly said up to this point. He's always been reminding us of our sinfulness in the first seven chapters of Romans. He's talked about the sinfulness of the Gentiles in chapter 1 and the sinfulness of the Jews in chapter 2. And oh, by the way, nobody's good. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's sort of a, a pounding one after another. But now, in Christ, no condemnation. What a wonderful truth. As if Jesus is saying to us, in me, you are completely safe. You don't have anything to worry about. But now I want you to walk according to the Spirit once you have received this. How can I possibly be assured of this goodness to me? I struggle with sin. Well, this declaration of grace is not a a free pass to go do whatever you want. Paul's already addressed that in Romans 6, hasn't he? When he said, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's, It's incompatible. We've got to walk in the Spirit. But something has changed about you. And it first was something said over you and about you. You're a, maybe you're a non-Christian here this morning and you read in these passages, it says that someone, an unbeliever, is hostile to God, can't do anything right in his sight. And you object. You say, well, no, wait a minute. I may be indifferent towards God, but I'm hardly hostile to him. That doesn't seem a fair distinction of me, you might say. Well, if God is your creator, which he is, If you're made in his image, which you are, and you want absolutely nothing to do with him, you don't want to talk to him, and you don't want him to talk to you, in fact, you want him to have absolutely nothing to do in your life whatsoever, that's hostility. If we don't want to listen to our God, and we don't want to walk in his ways, and we don't want to honor and worship him as we ought to, that's hostility. But that's not what we are anymore. We have peace through Jesus Christ. You know, when you're talking to a non-Christian friend, you are talking to a spiritual cadaver. What can dead people do? Well, they can't do anything, can they? They can't get up. They can't see. They can't understand. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. What has happened to you is that you have been renewed. You've been given a a new heart. You've been regenerated. You have eyes to see the loveliness of Christ that you didn't formerly have. It's not because you're smarter or better, or you had advantages that others did not, you were called from death into life. And what's more likely then is that God is going to use you as a trophy of his grace 
into the life and hearts of other people so that they might look at you and say, wow, Andy's a Christian? Well, I guess anybody can do it. If he can, and I know what he's done. I know what, I grew up with that guy. Wow, look at God's amazing grace for us. If this person could be led unto the Lord. So it begins with something being said about you. No condemnation. And then it moves on from there. Unto a liberation, unto transformation. You have been freed. Freed to live according to the way God wants you to. No, being in Christ does not stop you from sinning. There is an ongoing battle and struggle, no doubt. Worse than that, sometimes you fall headlong into sin, or maybe you feel like, they're, they're, okay, I cannot do that anymore, but there's no way I can stop that. There's no way I can resist that particular temptation. So Paul seeks to address this concern that maybe you've had before. Does the presence of sin in my life mean that I am not a Christian? Can I be in a right relationship with God, justified and adopted, and still sin as I do? Have you ever asked that before? Well, let's first correct a wrong way of thinking before we answer the question. We don't have a performance-driven religion. It's not that you have a bad week and you fall into sin and all of a sudden you've moved into the condemnation group and then you have a great week and you follow him the way you ought to and you move, you've shifted back over to the no condemnation group. It doesn't work that way. Paul is saying, yes, you can still struggle with your sin and be redeemed in Jesus Christ because your salvation didn't depend on you anyway. Can we abuse that? Yeah, we can. We can say, well, great, I can live however I want to live. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that the gospel includes two things, and you can never separate them. A declaration about who you are and a transformation of your life. It's both. The gospel's both things. You must see transformation. Seeing it within yourself is a confidence that, wow, God has justified me. He has changed me but you have been set free. You've been set free from the law of sin and death. The law, it, it only made you want to sin more. I told the first service, it's like when you see, if somebody on their lawn says, please keep off the grass, well, what do you want to do? You want to go stomp around on their lawn. It, it, it wells up within you. I want to do the very thing I'm not supposed to do. You, you feel it and sense it within yourself. But we have been liberated from that law of sin and death into a law of the Spirit. Or what he will go on to say in verse 12, we are debtors, but not to the flesh. You're a debtor to the Spirit. So when you hear those and feel those temptations within yourself, you can say, I'm, I don't owe you anything, flesh. I don't owe you a thing. Stop. Stop with those temptations. I owe now the Spirit my life in my deeds, in my heart, and everything else. We have died to that, and now we're alive to the Spirit. Because the law could never bring life. It was powerless to do what we needed it to. And it was weakened by our flesh. We couldn't meet its demands. You know, we use sometimes Christian jargon. We, we say, well, the, the Spirit led me to do this, or I think the Spirit is leading me to this job or to that city or, or, or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. The Spirit can open and close doors. But the way Paul typically uses that idea is not in the way we use it. 
He uses it the way he used it in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. Being led by the Spirit is being led unto holiness. So our concern ought to be less what major should I choose when I go to college, though that's important. It ought to be less what job and what city and what this and that. It ought to be how can I faithfully serve him in the things that I choose to do. So it's, it, in other words, Christianity is not a crystal ball or, or some sort of riddle for us to figure out. It's living according to the Spirit. Pursue the kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. So then we must ask ourselves, do I have an inclination to follow the Spirit and to walk in Him in this newness of life that I have been given? That ought to encourage you. That ought to make you certain of that assurance that you have in Christ Jesus, that I want to please Him by the Spirit. I want to do the things that, that God tells me to do in His Word. But all of this can be discouraging sometimes, can it? How many of us have given in to temptation? We have struggled with all, certain, all sorts of sins. <coughs> we become pessimistic and even cynical about whether we can really put to death this type of sin or any sin. We must remember then, the gospel declares something about you and it transforms you inside and out. You know, really, if, if we were to take the issues in the PCA right now and, and take them down to their base, this is what we would find. It's often a divorcing of transformation and declaration. We love to believe that the gospel declares something about me to be true. Everybody's on board with that. But not so on board with the transforming power in your life. That it's not just about the things you do, it's the desires that you have in your heart. The gospel completely transforms you in every way. Not just your actions, your very desires, whatever those desires may be. Whatever struggle it is. So when, everyone, when anyone comes into the doors of our church, we're going to call them to put to death even their desires. All of us. Because that's what living in the Spirit is. So we can't pull them apart. We've got to bring them back together. Thirdly and lastly, it's salvation because of condemnation. We have been freed so that we can live in a way that pleases the Spirit. Why are we able to do all that? Because we are saved in Jesus Christ. How? Because he took the condemnation that we were supposed to receive. He heard condemnation on the cross so that, so then we hear no condemnation. He took the bad so we get all the good. He heard all the, 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 the wrath and the unrighteous claims now we receive righteousness. The answer to all of this lies outside of ourselves. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We couldn't save ourselves. The initiative comes from, without, from outside of us. It's dependent on Christ only. And our status in relation to him makes all the difference. Are you in Christ? If you are, no condemnation. He endured the wrath. We have shelter in the rock of ages and we'll never hear those words again. But a million questions arise, don't they? 
Have you ever wondered to yourself, why does God love me like this? Why did he choose me and choose to show his loving kindness upon me rather than someone else? I don't understand. Well, he loves you so much, first Perez, because he loves his son so much. He loves you because of Jesus. And since you're united to him by faith, that's why you get all the blessings. That's why you get peace. That's why you get life in the Spirit. And what a wonderful thing it is. God did all of this at the cost of his son. It says he came for sin. In other words, Jesus came to this earth for sin. Let us not think that somehow ours got left out of that equation. But that's still not all of it. Because some of us, no doubt, don't feel as if you are in Christ. Or you don't feel, perhaps, as if you are saved or you have that assurance of the salvation And you want the Lord to come and bring that feeling of assurance. And sometimes he does. But what we really need to do is to believe what the scriptures say about us to be true, not what our feelings say about us to be true. He's saying you're not condemned. He's saying that he's given your spirit so that you can put all those desires and temptations to death. Believe those things to be true of yourself. But pastor, I can't. You don't know what I struggle with, and you don't know the hurt and the pain. Paul says, I know those things. You can be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way. And you've got to believe the gospel does both of those for you. Because God, Jesus did not just fulfill the righteous requirement for us. He fulfills the righteous requirement, as Paul says here, in us. He does change you. Yes, it's going to be a grueling work of sanctification. It's going to be hard, perhaps slow. But it is going to happen. And we need to be reminded of that today. I enjoy reading the works of John Calvin, uh, particularly uh, John Calvin was one of the reformers. He was a pastor in Geneva. Uh, And every Thursday afternoon, he met with a group called the Consistory. Consistory was a group of pastors and elders, and they met with, on average, about eight members of the church. And sometimes it was to rebuke or admonish. Other times it was just to encourage them in the gospel. And we have the minutes of those meetings. And you can guess who was normally the person who gave that advice. Well, it was Calvin himself. And what you would be surprised if you read these minutes is how how little variation there is in his counsel. You need to repent of your sins. You need to go to church more. You need to be catechized and sit under the teaching of the pastors. You need to partake of the sacraments, and you need to fellowship with God's people. So one of two, two conclusions must be true. One, Calvin wasn't a very good pastor, and he needs to be a little more creative with his counsel. I don't think so. Or the other is that Calvin was actually onto something. He knew that no matter what his people were struggling with, they needed to send out on the preaching of God's Word. They needed to learn the doctrines of faith. They needed to fellowship with God's people. They needed to partake of the sacraments and they need to repent of their sins. And that's going to solve your issues. In other words, you need to believe what the Scriptures say of you to be true. I've read a lot of counseling books in my my time, and I've benefited from many of them, but very few of them have such church-centric solutions to the problems that we have here in, in the pew today. No doubt some are, are more, have other issues and deeper that need to be hand, handled the other way. I'm not speaking to those. I'm speaking to the, the issues of lacking assurance, 
struggling with our sin and all the rest, listen to what the Scriptures say of you to be true and lean into that. Holy Spirit empowers us for this. And it takes us back to the cross once again. Nothing in my hand I bring and simply to the cross I cling. We battle the sin because we love our Savior and we want to be like Him. And He helps us do that. Ray Ortland, in his great book on Romans 8 entitled Supernatural Living for Natural People, he tells a story about an oncologist who was an elder in his church. And in his office, he has a plaque that sits on one of his bookshelves, and this is what it says. Cancer is so limited. It cannot cripple love. It cannot shatter hope. It cannot corrode faith. It cannot destroy peace. It cannot kill friendship. It cannot suppress memories. It cannot silence courage. <coughs> it cannot invade the soul. It cannot steal eternal life. And it cannot conquer the spirit. Those things cannot be taken from you. The body may be wasting away. We are being renewed in our inner person day by day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. That can't be taken from you. The declaration can't be taken from you. But what he asks you now is to live according to his word, to please him with your life. And one day all this will be over. He will come again. We will be perfectly glorified and renewed and he will finally have brought us all the way home by his grace. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is such an encouragement to us, but most of all, that it's true. It's your word unto us, Lord, and that we would believe it. We would believe what you say to us, and what you say about us, and what you've done for us. Lord, thank you that you didn't just save us from our sins, you're also fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law in us, and that we would follow you all the days of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.